the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot more information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to another awesome episode of We Get Real AF. Today's topic is near and dear to both Sue and me as it relates to children and education. Preparing the next generation of whole humans by decreasing fear of challenging subjects and increasing accessibility to STEAM programs is crucial to empowering curiosity and creativity in young minds and shaping future leaders. The Two-Bit Circus Foundation fosters this very mindset with the mission to cultivate the next generation of inventors, advance environmental stewardship, and spur community engagement through STEAM. This educational organization is inspiring the new wave of creative thinkers and doers by reimagining core social values. With us to explore the magic of Two-Bit Circus is CEO Dr. Leah Haynes. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. So uh, I am originally a farm kid from Canada and living in Los Angeles now for 30 years. So I feel like a bit like a native. And uh, I was running this little nonprofit called Trash for Teaching, which had a terrible name, but a great reputation, a great uh, uh, series of, of projects that we did. And what we basically do is gather manufacturers clean waste and use it for project-based learning. And a few years ago, I guess maybe six, five or six years ago now, I got a call from Brent Bushnell, the co-founder of Two-Bit Circus. He and Eric Gadman were putting on the very first uh, STEAM carnival, so science, technology, engineering, art, and math carnival uh, in uh, San Pedro. And they invited us to come and bring our glue guns and a table full of our things and let kids make, which we did. And it was three days of an absolutely amazing experience. I went to the to Brent and Eric at the end of it. And I said, I, I need one of you to join my board. That was, I felt like I had experienced the next generation of Cirque du Soleil, only instead of sitting back and watching the spectacle, you were immersed in it. And every kid that went through there, their eyes were just bugging out and they had no idea they were being educated. They really just were there for a circus. I love that stealth education. That's amazing. <laughs> right. Well, and when kids are learning without that, um, I don't know, stigma of being in school or learning because it might sound unattractive, like just enjoying the environment, um, that's the that's the dream and that's the win-win scenario. Absolutely. And there's no reason for us these days to be teaching kids in classrooms with, you know, rows with a teacher at the front. We We really need to rethink the whole way we're educating kids. If we had the, the best game designers in the country, looking at how to turn curriculum into games, we'd have a chance. I mean, right now we have a lot of academics like me creating games for kids. And when you go and look at them, they're like, yeah, an academic made that game. Kids are going to do it if they have to, but they're not going to do it because they want to. And, you know, math is a good example where kids really, most of the theory of math could be taught through games from the very basics of teaching, adding and subtracting and recognizing numbers up to the more complex. And instead of saying they're just past sixth grade math, we say when they get to level eight there, we know they're algebra ready. They're, they're learning because it's part of the game they're playing. I love that. And it's so interesting you mentioned is that we're still inside and teaching kids in this more traditional way. Um, with COVID-19, I was reading an article about, I, I don't remember if it was like Japan or South Korea. Um, a, there was a school that basically has now taken all of their classes outside because of the virus and they're not going back. Um, literally they're like, I don't know what area they found, but basically the school like inside out is all outdoors. So each grade level is on a different floor, but they're almost all engaging, interacting with each other. It's a very interesting concept, but to your point, 
evolution. <laughs> yeah, well, we've, we've been handed a, a revolution in education. Like, we cannot go back to business as usual. It's not possible until there's a vaccine, vaccination that we know works because whatever they come up with first is still going to have time to uh, roll up. There's, there's going to be a long period of time where parents are just not going to be comfortable sending their kids to typical classrooms. So how do we address it? What do we look like on the other side of this pandemic? You know, when my girls who are grown now were little, and this they're not that grown, they're, they're when still in college and we still have some early 20s, but the middle school that they went to had this mindset that you're describing, Leah. Um, for science and math, they had this project called Where's Waldo? And there was a turtle named Waldo over at NC State's campus, and they would track the progress of the turtle as it went from... I don't know if turtles migrate locally, but it was doing some kind of local movement and they would like um, study how far it moved in a day. And they learned about graphing and statistical analysis. They learned a little bit about um, the safety and levels of the water and the stream that this turtle Waldo lived in and things like that. They were learning science, math, learning how to write reports and give presentations. And it was so engaging. So Leah, I just wanted to ask you, when did we add arts to STEM because I think that's so important. And I know when my girls were in middle and high school, it was STEM all the time and out STEAM. Why and when did that take place? So we argued in favor of this for a long time. It's actually how uh, Brent Bushnell and, and Eric and I had a meeting of the minds before we were working together. I was working through the LA Chamber of Commerce to lobby California to adopt the A. And, and the point is just the others, A is essential to all of the disciplines. If someone had told Leonardo da Vinci not to uh, mix his art with his science, we would all be the poorer for it. So uh, we lobbied hard. And in 27, no, early 2017 was when the California uh, Department of Education said they would no longer use the acronym STEM and would use STEAM, acknowledging that the arts were an important part. And another like, little example, my very first week on the job, I went to a dinner, a fundraising dinner that the, uh, an educational group were putting together and they had schools showing their projects and the teachers there. And one of the teachers that we had worked with was there with a, a few students. And this one young woman had uh, done a project we call Light It Up, where they have to build a little model home with one battery that, that uh, runs three different items in the house. So three different light switches, a fan, a light switch, whatever they had, they could pick out. And, you know, most of the kids did these little, like throw it together and the switch worked with that. We were teaching circuitry, but for this young woman, it was a full on art project. She made a model home that had floor coverings. She had window coverings. She had uh, magnets on the refrigerator in her kitchen. There was a fence around. It was really elaborate. And when I asked her uh, she was a senior. So when I asked her what she was going to do for uh, next year, she told me she was the first in her family to finish high school and she was going to Berkeley on a full scholarship to study engineering. And when I asked her how she got interested in engineering, she said Mr. Dvorak, who was the teacher there, had helped her see that uh, her art, because she always saw herself as an artist, she didn't see herself with any interest or, or particular talent in the STEM disciplines, but he helped her see that engineering and architecture had artistic components and without the art, they couldn't complete what they were doing. So she applied to engineering school and, and got in. And that was my, all the confirmation I needed to say, yes, like it's almost like the gateway drug for kids, get them in there because of the arts. We can introduce them to science, technology, engineering, and math and in a more seamless way. But if you leave the arts out, it takes much of the joy out of schools for kids. And I, and I think you have to be able to think creatively and to uh, think outside the lines, right? Think outside the box. That's so important with any kind of engineering or math discipline. So I'm glad to see this in science discipline as well. Absolutely. I want to get it back into a two-bit circus, how the idea, the concept was born. Um, I, I know the carnival concept of it, but were you part of the original team? How were you brought on, etc.? Can we go into a deeper dive on that? Sure. Um, so no, two-bit circus uh, corporate started it, uh, around um, I think 2010, nine or 10. And they really started by doing different events for like an Amazon annual party or and creating live experiences. I mean, they created a, 
cloud that rains tequila for one group and for the, I think it was the uh, Mexican uh, tourism board. And so they did all those kinds of things. And then they decided that this steam carnival was, was what they should do next. And it was right around that time that I met uh, Brent and Eric. And really just at the first time I met them, we were under the uh, endeavor at the science center here in, in California for an event. And um, a, yet another event for education, a fundraiser. And it was like, there is Brent and Eric with their, you know, really sexy robots and high tech fun stuff. And I'm there with my glue guns and trash. And that was our first. And they really kind of adopted us. They loved what we were doing. The fact that we have rescued 570 some tons of material from going to landfill, put it into the hands of young inventors and young artists and all that sort of thing. And and so Brent and Eric really invited us to come and take part in the steam carnival, you know, as a very generous and gracious offer. And it was through that experience that we really started. Because after like Brent did join my board right after the steam carnival, and it was a couple of years later when they were thinking of starting their own nonprofit. And I couldn't sleep. Like Brent was going to leave the board, and then I heard from one of the uh, executives at Two Bit that they wanted to offer me the role of executive director in their new nonprofit, but it was a conflict because Brent was on our board. Anyway, I, I called Brent first thing in the morning, the next morning, and said, "I think I have an idea. What if we take the trash for teaching, change our name to the Two Bit Circus Foundation? We do everything that we currently do. We add to it the layer of high tech, exciting things that you guys do." And we're already working in all the school districts, like there are 80 some school districts and you have to be registered as a vendor for each one. So it took, you know, all of the logistics aside, it was a great fit. All of the tactical hands-on stuff that we do is how 2-Bit Circus starts building games. And all of the uh, high-tech stuff that they do, the schools want. And we were, you know, I had staff ready to do that kind of stuff, but we didn't have access to the uh, creations and, and the information that, that two bit did. So the marriage was fantastic. And, you know, since then we've, we've taken on two other nonprofits where similar situations in that they had great programs. They were struggling with this area or that, or they needed a new ED. And, um, and we now are like four nonprofits under one roof. And there was very little overlap. There was no overlap among funders. They were all different. We all had different funding backgrounds. And even programmatically, uh, you know, some worked in after school while the others worked in, day, in, in the uh, day school. And, and so it's been a really engaging and interesting uh, few years. It's been seven years of that kind of build. That's a great collaboration, very fortuitous, uh, where you guys were both at the same place at the same time and got to engage with each other and, and saw potential. You mentioned you had a lot of resources within education. Um, how does the program work? And what does your national outreach look like? You know, is it solely with the schools or are there also after school programs where you uh, put the invitation out to children that are interested? Yeah. So we, we work in the classroom with teachers. We do professional development with teachers, trying to help them move from lecture style to project based learning and now adding a level of teaching them how to do it at a distance learning uh, reality in a distance learning reality. Um, we do after school programs and we've supplied, um, we do steam, we build steam labs in schools too. So the in-school program includes that 173 steam labs that we've built so far. And in the after school world, we have portable steam labs that we've supplied 80 some to local after school groups and across the country because we've shipped them out as well. Uh, and then with the, um, imagination programs, we have creativity chapters around the world that grew out of the Kane's Arcade video that went viral in 2012. And that uh, program is, includes the Global Cardboard Challenge. We just did our first virtual cardboard, Global Cardboard Challenge in, uh, uh, in early May. And it went well, and we will continue doing them for as long as being virtual is uh, important. And then the steam carnivals, which have really grown. So that I've been at every one. The first one was the one in San Pedro. Then Two Bit Circus, after Brent joined our board, they did one in San Francisco, and he invited us to that. 
And then it was after that that we became, became the Two-Bit Circus Foundation. And since then, we've done um, four in Dallas and two in Hawthorne, two in Compton. Uh, we were getting ready to do one in Linwood on April 7th. Clearly, that didn't happen. Uh, but And we did one in Perth, Australia, so our first international steam carnival. And we're now... Thank you. Yeah. And we're working with a group that uh, out of Hong Kong that want to do one in the fall of 2021. So that part of it has been very busy, but it's really, it's been uh, an exciting time for us to go from glue guns and trash to all of these uh, programs that we're able to take out. And really the upside of um, the quarantine is that we've been forced to do things that we've been saying for a long time we would like to do. We wanted to move all of our training and professional development to a digital platform. So that the in-person part was really sort of coming together and, and uh, celebrating it, but that will be on hold for a while, but we've been able to start putting our, our trainings on digital platforms and getting the, you know, removing the geogra- geography uh, barrier. So really all of our programs, the barrier to entry is cardboard. And that's pretty much universal. You can find that in almost any, and I don't even bring scissors when we do uh, projects with teachers. I bring the cardboard and things to work with it, but nothing easy like scissors and tape. That would just be, you know, I want them to struggle a bit with finding what they need and have that experience like the, like the students do. That's wonderful. Yeah, cardboard. Um, yeah, Amazon will always help you. Out <laughs> a little too much coming from Amazon. Um, Leah, you have some really interesting statistics on your website about teacher education and the education levels of teachers who are trying to teach STEAM subjects to, say, for example, middle school students. Could you talk about those and kind of how your program is helping to sort of bridge that gap? Because there is a, a gap, it seems, in the education level of the teachers who have to turn around and teach these subjects to their students. Yeah, there, and add to that gap again now, the technology. A lot of teachers are just not yet comfortable with teaching online. And you know the, the number of silly little faux pas that happen when you consider, I mean, everybody's doing skits about how crazy it is watching people on Zoom trying to communicate. Teachers have been really struggling. And some of them we, we did a professional development with a group and at the end of it, the one teacher came over to me and said, I'm so glad we did that. And I wasn't going to tell anybody, but she said, I'd never even used a glue gun in the past. And we had them using drills and dremels. And so it's like, um, but yeah, there's a shortage of, te- of really short, shortage of good teachers, but there's a shortage of teachers in general. And so you've got, you know, English literature teachers running maker spaces and steam labs. And that's one thing if they, English teacher really is a do-it-yourself kind of person and a maker, but that's not been the case. We've been working with some schools where the the teachers really have no idea what any of the tools are called. The good news about that is that those teachers are more apt to follow the kind of direction we give in that we ask teachers to take a step back. Don't go in and tell everybody how they're going to do everything. Go in and give them a challenge. Today, we're going to make vehicles. What do you think we could use for wheels? Really give them a, 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 a challenge of something that you want them to make and then let them struggle through the process of making it because it's in those struggling moments when they become problem solvers and creative thinkers and critical thinkers. And I, um, you know, uh, I like to say that with, you know, with more money comes bigger problems because you want kids not to have everything that they need immediately because that just creates a follow the instructions kind of experience. If they have to struggle through something, like if you buy an expensive robotics kit, the kids follow the instructions and make that robot and it'll be impressive and because a robot designer designed it. But if you give them some random materials and maybe some Adrenos or Raspberry Pi and ask them to make a robot, they become problem solvers and critical thinkers and creative thinkers. And then it's those are skills that are going to carry them through the rest of their lives. I love that. I think that is so wise. And it's interesting to me because I feel like the educational system, and Vanessa, I think you feel this way too, is is sort of rigid. I mean, and yet there's so much, you would expect that teachers and educators who work in the sphere of the mind and in broadening and minds and educating them 
would be really outside the box thinkers. And I think a lot of teachers are, but there's a lot on their plates, right? But I, I feel like the system in general is kind of rigid and not outside the box thinking. And I'd be curious to know what areas you feel like technology can or will be used in the future, if you're looking forward, to help make that system more malleable, more flexible, and really foster this kind of critical thinking and creative thinking that you're describing? Well, for starters, I think we can get rid of the big, heavy textbooks that kids are carrying around and put everything on a digital platform. Individualized learning programs are going to be possible when every kid has a laptop or every kid has a device. And teachers' roles would change. We still need them. We, we desperately need good teachers. But their role becomes facilitator and counselor. And, uh, and, and I mean the counselor from the perspective of a, a coach on a project team. Uh, and, and that we wouldn't so much put kids into groups of ages as much as we would put them into groups of interests. So like, at what point in your life have you ever been able to say, I'm sorry, I only work with people my own age. Like it just doesn't happen. So we put them in these grade level because it's easier for us to manage what they need to know by the end of each grade. But if we have technology that allows us to do individualized learning programs, you might find a student who makes it all the way through elementary school and they're only 11 they, because they were so passionate and, and the system they were learning in was easy for them. Like right now you have kids who really excel if they are the kind of kids who can hear it. Others of us are not so lucky. Like I, I struggled for every grade I ever got in school. And I went back to school very late. I was in my 50s when I did my PhD. And it probably because it took me those 30 years to do the homework in between. But there are some who, you know, if, you, if, they, if we have individualized learning programs and we know a simple personality test tells us which track to put somebody on in terms of whether they learn better from auditory or whether they need to be tactile, which most kids do, especially young kids. I mean, having them up making something, they'll remember what they did better than if they're sitting still trying to listen to an adult at the front of the room. Uh, so I think really technology offers us a huge uh, bump for education. And unfortunately, and this is not going to make me popular to say this out loud, but unfortunately, the one of the biggest hurdles we have right now is the teachers union because the teachers unions working on protecting wages and retirement programs, which are very important to protect. But, but I think losing sight of the fact that we are there for the kids and what if we have to, and maybe because now with the pandemic, we have to rethink everything we're doing. And it may be an opportunity to negotiate a little differently with the unions because we can only do this if we're all on the same page, if we're all trying to find the best way to educate kids without being able to get them into the classroom. Some will be in the classroom because they have no option. Mom and dad are both at work. I'm eight years old. I need to be somewhere. Uh, they're going to be at school, but there'll be less. So it'll be easier to distance them and give them the space they need. And it'll be easier to work with the ones that need help. But students who are doing fine in distance learning and mom and dad can afford to have somebody looking after them while they're at work or mom and dad are maybe working from home, whatever the situation, if the option exists, uh, a significant percentage of those parents will choose to educate the kids in a distance uh, program for a while. Something you mentioned earlier really resonated with me in regard to um, education right now, the way it stands is we put children in grade levels depending on their age um, as opposed to their interests. I had the opportunity to go to an art school and um, obviously there were different grade levels, but for your art interests, and we had several different things, vocal music, theater, visual arts, dance, communications, et cetera. You were in those classes with people of all different age ranges and you Wonder. would work together to whatever project you're working on or whatever material you were learning as far as music or whatever the case. So it's interesting that mindset because I had friends in all different age groups because I was not forced, but that's just the way that curriculum was set up. And I, I had such an, a magical 
you know, high school experience because of that. So it's very interesting that you make that comment. I wonder what impact it would have on uh, bullying issues if they did that yeah. as well, because right. the, the, the kind hearted older kids are going to say, hey, I heard that. You can't talk to each other like that. Don't don't say that to her or to him or there would be some monitoring with with near peers. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to jump in really quick because I see kind of both sides of that coin. I mean, uh, my daughters went to Montessori schools when they were really young, and that was helpful because they kind of lumped them in three-year age groups. Um, and so the older kids did sort of mentor the younger kids who weren't too much younger than them. However, I also know that there's a lot of social things that kids get exposed to, especially around the middle school years that you don't want a 10-year-old exposed to any sooner than they have to be. So that's something that I feel like would have to be navigated really carefully. Yeah, that's a really good point. That really is. And I think that there are ways in which to navigate that, right? I mean, maybe there are, um, putting an age group again on it, but maybe there are just because of those social issues where you have an age group of, you know, I don't know, let's say five to... I don't know, borderline eight, nine, before they get into that other stage of their life and puberty hits and all of that jazz. Um, And then from there on, that group of kids gets to interact with each other and whatever that case looks like. But you have the mentorship, you have that camaraderie that starts to build and just the younger kids learning from the older kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are studies that show siblings, you know, you have your first child and then the second child learns that much quicker because of the older one teaching the younger one and them Mm -hmm. moving up to the the older child. So um, very interesting conversation there. Also something that I I think that we're all starting to notice, um, whether it be our political foundation or platforms, our... um, uh, educational platforms, uh, corporate structure, we're all being forced to, we have these nudges right now that like things that were maybe put off, like, oh, we'll get to it. We don't have the opportunity to just say, oh, we'll get to it. It's, especially with COVID-19, we have these little nudges now that are like, okay, this has to happen now in order for us to sustain and to keep working. So um, we, you know, I, Sue and I are positive uh, individuals and we like to look at the silver linings and things. And I, I think these nudges are a good thing and they're a necessary thing, um, especially when you look at the the overall world. Like <laughs> when you think of the human climate, it, we just, right. there's, a, there's a major need for that right now. You know, right now, as we're interviewing and having this conversation, we have a lot of racial unrest in this country. And I think about how the current traditional educational system, to your point, Leah, is based on a specific age and expectations, and those children are compared to their peers. And if technology enabled a way to be more individualized so that each child could be told, okay, here's what you need to achieve. You're not being compared to somebody else. This is your path. This is your learning um, sort of map that you're going to follow. I wonder if some of those stigmas would fall away with that. I don't know, but that's a hope. I, I think they, the more we can give students an opportunity to take agency over their education, and the only way to do that is to approach them where they are or in their interest area. And this generation of kids are playing games constantly. They're on devices constantly. So finding a way to add their individualized learning through that platform and giving them the agency to pick and choose interest areas that they can go off in. And then it's it's not one teacher with 30 kids who has to teach 30 different subjects. It's like, oh, you're in this path, we can put you with that teacher because you don't need the geography of them to be in the same room. It's going to take some rethinking, there's no question. But I think it's I think it's doable and that this there will be positive things that come out of this. There are going to be plenty of negative things, but there will be some positive things that come out of it. This is an opportunity. Parents are engaged. Let's keep them engaged and let's make sure they really have a voice in this. Hey, everybody. Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. 
explain the significance of now being the time to engage and bring the world of STEAM to children of all cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds, um, because that's a really big, important mission that you um, advocate. A part of the problem and one of the reasons for all the, this uh, unrest is the inequity that exists in general, but specifically in education. We spend uh, so much less on students who are in Compton and Watts than we do on students who are in Beverly Hills and Santa Monica. I mean, I live in California, so those are my references, but it's, it's appalling. And there's no, there, there are students in every geography that will excel given opportunities. And we've been handed an opportunity. We've been given a, an opportunity to rethink the way we are in every part of our life. We've just had three months of at home. Who has ever, other than women who are at the final stage of their pregnancy, who has ever had that much time to just sit and think and be in your own world. And so coming out of this, it would be a shame to put everything back to business as usual. So the, the now part for me is we can make this accessible globally. This is not just a US problem. The, the world has had a pandemic. The US is having this uh, unrest issue, but there's, a, there's an opportunity to turn this around. And it, it, like, yesterday watching the news, I, I come from across the river in uh, Michigan. I live, grew up in Ontario. So Michigan yesterday, one, a, a sheriff in one of the counties in Michigan, as the protesters arrived, took off his helmet, set down his baton and asked them if he could march with them. The other, mm -hmm. the other officers got down and then took a knee. Like, we need that. We, I'm getting choked up telling you again, yeah. but it's like, I can it's too, too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what we need law enforcement right now to say, we condemn that. That is not the way we behave. That is wrong. And, and it needs to be dealt with. We're here to listen and we're here to help. Let's make this better. But we, we need, uh, we need the same kind of energy in education right now that just says, okay, uh, and, and bringing the teachers unions to the table and saying, okay, everything from our past is on the table. What can we do with keeping the student as the focus? What can we do to make sure that we can give every child the same access? If they're interested and motivated and they want to study, they want to become a rocket scientist, the path to get there should be obvious for them no matter what their zip code is. Is there any place in the world that we can look to as an example? I mean, is any culture or country or school district anywhere that you know of doing things that we could model ourselves after in this spirit? It's such a great question. And there are different pockets that have different things right, but there, there's not a country that I can say, those guys have got it. Like in if you're looking at scores, wow, Japan off the charts. So is uh, suicide among young people. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. pressure yeah. that put on those kids to excel. So it's really about, um, we have a, a fellow, um, I was in graduate school with him actually, he wrote a book called Simplicity Parenting. And he runs a workshop on simplicity parenting. And, and it really is about the fact that it's, it's not about how much money you spend. It's really about what kind of time you spend with your children and whether you let them struggle with something. Like if the parents are jumping in and fixing every little thing that goes wrong for the child, the child doesn't build the muscle that says, oh, problem. Oh, too bad. I think I can deal with it. Like they see the problem. They, they feel whatever is the appropriate feeling when you go through a difficult time, but they build a muscle that tells them, I got this. And that doesn't come without some struggle. So I wish that there were a country I could point to and say, boy, they, they do a great job there, but I haven't seen it yet. Then it's even more of an opportunity for the U.S. That's exactly what I was thinking. Opportunity, 100%. And to experiment and to see, not be afraid to try something and say, okay, that didn't work. Let's go back to the drawing board. Or pieces of it worked. Let's add on to that. Mm -hmm. Such a good point. You know, the idea of failure, we really try to work with students to get them comfortable with the idea that failure isn't the end of something. It's information that you need to get to the end of something. Right. And, you know, sometimes it is information that says, okay, this is done, cannot move any further. But 
but often it's just, oh, okay, I have to make this adjustment. I have to try this. And that's the other thing about our materials that it's so inexpensive. It's, it would have been in landfill if we didn't send it to the school steam labs and maker spaces. So it's think, okay, that messed up. Let's try it again. Let's put that to the side, salvage whatever can be. The technology can come out of it and try a new one. I love that all this is possible with cardboard and an open mind. <laughs> right. Absolutely. In Amazon again. Let's, let's, <laughs> jobs of the future. Let's talk about jobs mm-hmm. of the future because we always find that super interesting. There's a statistic on uh, the website that says 65% of children will be employed in jobs that don't yet exist. And that was from the U.S. Department of Labor. So right. let's talk about that. Well, imagine, I mean, even in my own generation, because I'm 100 years old at this point, the kinds of changes that I've seen, like I... I remember in business when fax machines were introduced and it was revolutionary. Instead of sending something by courier and getting it back a couple of days later, suddenly you could send it over a wire and it would come back. I mean, now we have instant communication. We it's the, the for better for better or worse, right? Right. right? <laughs> but for this generation of kids, yeah, I mean, like ten years ago, you couldn't make a living making ringtones for somebody's phone. Now there's a it's a bit. So, and also this generation of kids are growing up documenting everything. So being able to tell stories, imagine how many more Steven Spielbergs and Ron Howards are out there, but never had access to all of that amazing equipment that you needed to make a film. Well, now you need a phone and you can right. make a little film mm-hmm. and your the talent can come to the surface that way. And and it can be developed. People can become better at what they do. Now, so much of technology makes all of those things possible. It's like we do game jams with kids where we teach them how to create their own games. So you're teaching them a little bit of scratch. Some kids get more advanced and go to Unity. But there, I talk to the kids about the fact that, you, you know, for the first 10 years or so of your life, you are a consumer of what other people are making and putting in front of you. But by the time you're 10, you can start thinking about what you'd like to make to put out there for other people. And things like Roblox, which was designed for kids to make games for other kids. And so helping them see that the skills they're building, even as children, can influence the kinds of careers they can go into. And some kids are really passionate about things really early in life. Helping children find their interest early, they'll then decide how far they're going to go in, in, in their schooling because if they are really keen on finding out more and more and more about an, a topic, their career is laid out for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or just paving a path into what, I mean, we're talking about jobs of the future, creating a, a field, you know, in that in that area that you're interested right. in. And I find it really, you brought something up that really resonated with me. Um, I remember when YouTube came out and there were a lot of people putting out content almost like their mini shows, if you will. Um, And those people wound up getting picked up by networks to have their shows on live television. And had that gone through the, I come from reality TV background, had that gone through the traditional process, half of those shows would have never even been considered. They wouldn't have even left a phone call, um, let alone get gotten it into a, a face-to-face meeting with a, a network executive. So I just feel exactly like you do, that the sky is the limit and there's such great opportunity. Do you know, are, are there specific things that you foresee being jobs of the future? I would love to hear your insight on that, like, you know, specific jobs that people could potentially start researching and, and um, Googling. Well, I do think that um, learning how to design and, and develop in platforms like Unity and, and Scratch are not just about creating games. They're also about creating solutions to social issues or creating experiences that can help people help people relate to other cultures. There's a fabulous virtual reality experience where you are an immigrant crossing mm-hmm. the border. And it was at the uh, Hammer Museum here in Los Angeles for a while. And it was so profound. People came out of that with a different sense of the other. And I think that's one of the things that like creating virtual reality experiences in the future that will both some will be training for uh, for jobs and, and skills 
and others will be experiential. If, if you've never been to the Louvre in virtual reality, we can take you there. You can be mm-hmm. that close to the Mona Lisa. I would say Brent and Eric, the two co-founders of 2Bit, the corporate side, they are our visionaries. And every time I'm up against something that I can't quite figure out, and, and uh, I am definitely a digital immigrant. So they are the, you know, more digital native than I, and, and they have a great sense of um, both a commitment to giving back and social justice, and this like really deep knowledge of I mean, I don't know if you, Brent is the son of Nolan Bushnell, who invented Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. So Brent's background is technology, and I've leaned heavily on him for for that kind of uh, input. You mentioned something a few moments ago, Leah, about how kids using technology now can become their own journalists and their own storytellers. And you made a really good point. It got me thinking because our kids are so saturated with the access to media before they really have an understanding of how much damage or how much good it could do. And I feel like there is room and a great need in this space to teach kids how to use technology responsibly. And I don't know if anybody is teaching that, but, you know, helping kids really understand the power that they have when they, in the palm of their hand, when they send a tweet or an Instagram message or story out or put something up on TikTok, there's so much power in that that will be attached to their reputation and to their voice for a very, very long time. And nobody's, there's nothing in the educational system that I'm aware of that's teaching how to use that power responsibly. Oh, you are so right. And you've hit something that's really important to us. We've been talking about it a lot that we're actually about to launch a a project. Uh, The working title has been Tell Your Story Through Music and Video. And the idea is to help kids learn the power of that voice and to help them choose something either in their family, their own personal life or their culture or their school or their community at large that, that is troubling to them and tell the story. So we'll help them learn how to write a song if they want to follow the music side of it, and then how to put visuals behind their song to emphasize the message they're trying to tell. But the underlying, it's sort of like hiding the education in games for us. This is helping them see the power of it because throughout that process, you're talking to them about the other things like the spur of the moment thing that you might send out when you're really angry at someone will live forever on the internet. So think twice before you send that out or any pictures that you're going to send out that might embarrass you down the road. I mean, I would like to tell my younger self not to do anything that I thought that I thought might still embarrass me six months from now, because when you're young, you don't think 20 years from now. But right. (laughs) And and that's really like part of the message behind the tell your story with uh, music and video is like helping them really see the power of that for a positive and just how damaging it can be. And there are plenty of examples right now, too, of people who've put things out on the internet and have just been crushed as a result of what came back at them. And not just young kids. I mean, we're talking right. about adults that are going through this, too. And the thing yeah. is, it's like and there is no precursor, right? There's no do you want to post. It's like you're posting and there's no action that's required before you actually activate it like before it goes live (laughs) before you push the red button right (laughs) yeah for every other thing I feel like every other thing I do online I'm like yes for the 10th time yes I do I want to do it for anything I want to post from my phone like my personal done well (laughs) it's just so quick in addition to the whole idea of reputation management or hurting somebody in the immediate moment because you do something rashly, which we all know kids do. Heck, adults do it. Kids have presumably less executive function in their brains than adults. But but also just accuracy. Like if you're putting information out into the world, are you being a responsible journalist? And my background is broadcast news. And I look at some of the journalism, quote unquote, that I'm seeing now, and I think, my gosh, I would never have put that title on that article or said something that way because it's so biased or where are the facts? Like, is this really a news story or is this just somebody holding forth because they think it's going to rank them higher in the search engines, you know? And that's huge, I think, because we're all turning to our technology to inform us about what's going on in the world around us. And we need to know how to do that piece responsibly as well. Yeah, I agree. 
there's that ethical part of it too, right? <laughs> it's just like good human beings and what you want to put out into the ether. And yeah, it's, and I think well, kids that's need a, to learn that. Thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's another point that education, you know, maybe it's not the teacher's job to be worried about the ethical side of raising the child, but it's they're, they're in the place. And if it's not being done, uh, even if it is being done at home, but it's not being followed at school, it really is up to the adults in the room to find ways without shaming a child. Because a lot of times the child is simply regurgitating what they've heard at home. So shaming them doesn't help because you're trying to get them to rethink things that are being uh, put into their thought process on a daily basis. And, and it's also you know getting kids to question things that are happening at home without making them think their parents are bad people. So mm -hmm. there, there's a lot, but ethics, you know, my PhD was, was really on uh, ethical decision-making mm. and it's really, if we don't get it in when the kids are young, uh, cause I know there are a few things we've said like, yeah, but adults need help with that too. I have pretty much given up on this generation of adults, especially my contemporaries, because, um, we kind of blew it. We really environmentally, we blew it. I think with our, uh, when I look around at my contemporaries, our children are all in their thirties and forties. And the number of, uh, you know, the percentage of adults my age who, who were not really there for the kids when the kids were little and now are struggling to why do my kids do this and why are they doing that? And it's all kind of, we need, we, we need the, the family fiber, which is the other thing about this pandemic. It's forced people to be home together as family units for an extended period of time. One of the funniest things I saw was a, a parent who, who wrote um, to the teachers, you lied. You told me my student was a pleasure to have in the classroom, and he's not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is, like, now we've, we have parents engaged. I, for one, really want to keep them engaged and and. There's a new respect for teachers. Uh, it is a really tough job. And mm -hmm. the fact that they're willing to show up and do it every day, if they got more support from the parents, probably would feel better about what they're doing. A lot of them don't make a lot of money. Increase wages. Absolutely. Yes. Wages yeah. and benefits for sure. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, they a good teacher is there for the student. And they're going to do oh. everything in their power to pour yeah. what they can into those young brains. And um, mm -hmm. it's the most underpaid job, I think, 100%. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to need a lot more of the young students coming out of teacher's college now, too, because with this need to become more technically savvy, there are a lot of folks my age who are not. I mean, I, I enjoyed jumping in and learning technology, and I have also had amazing mentors around me, which is why it's been enjoyable for me. But there are going to be a lot of teachers who have five, six, maybe eight years left of what they thought they were going to teach who are going to say, I don't, I don't want to learn this whole new system. I'm going to retire. I'm going to go now. I think on making the profession more attractive to right. young college students. Absolutely. For sure. And we're partnering actually with Annenberg Learner from the Annenberg Foundation. And that is really one of their goals. And I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school to tell you this story, but they have one plan that I just think is such a brilliant way to help elevate the status. And that is to talk to the airlines uh, when they're board, pre-boarding and they say, would all active military please board now? It would be, would all active military and active teachers please board early? Mm. So oh, yeah, giving, idea. yeah. Right? Just giving the profession, like, oh my goodness, they're paying. When we do professional development, I do a, a really nice meal for the teachers. Like I put out a buffet and like that, and they have cutlery and and plates and and cloth napkins and we set it and and I can't tell you the number of times that teachers have near tears said to us like you just take such good care of us when we're here and and I feel like I tell them like you are our rock stars mm -hmm. you get up and go out there and do this every day we're here to try and support and help motivate and, and do whatever we can but you guys are the rock stars but they're not used to being treated well Right. No, it's so wrong. It's so wrong because they're the stewards of the next generation and they have to do so much exactly. more than teach. I mean, the reality is they do a lot of child rearing nowadays. There are so many children who have preschool care, you know, before school care, during school care and after school care. 
And yeah. that's, that's just a lot to put on teachers, but that's a whole other, yeah. whole other. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a different show. That's a different episode. <laughs> right. To be continued. Right. Yeah. Well, that's just a wonderful excuse to invite you back. We've had such a yes. great conversation <laughs> with you and you. we appreciate you being part of our discussion today. Leah, is there anything that we didn't cover that you're super passionate about that you just want to let everybody know about before we move into our lightning round? I think the only thing I didn't touch on that, that has been really important as they sort of full circle things that have started to happen with the students we work with and Two-Bit Circus Corporate. We've had a group of um, uh, interns from several different local colleges, USC, the art school, working with us on developing games that are educationally based for uh, students and um, or to introduce into schools. And the last team of, uh, of interns actually showed one of the games they had developed at the last beta night at Two-Bit Circus. And it's it being in the, the newest game there, Dr. Botcher, one of our interns helped design the, uh, uh, the creature that lays on the operating table for the game. So it's, it's been a really full circle between the foundation and the corporate side that's been really wonderful to experience. I think this would be such a cool program for um, – team building and corporations Mm -hmm. like using tools and like you know cardboard boxes and scissors and tape and whatever and just team building with your cohorts and just thinking of something you know what's the problem that we're trying to solve and get creative and try to 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 solve it you know I think that's such an interesting dynamic because I'm thinking man that would be really cool I'd like to participate in that (laughs) Uh (laughs) yeah that that would be uh that would be great and and uh we do a lot of that. We do uh, team building exercises for corporations. I think team building, like doing the cardboard challenge, we've done that with several companies. And last year, Vans Shoes gave us a really generous donation, which is helping us survive this pandemic because I have 26 people and all their families who are counting on us to stay uh, solvent. And, and most of our work in this time of year is fee for service and it's all gone. So, right. uh, but but they're a great example. They created, they started a creativity chapter at Vans headquarters in Costa Mesa. They had a cardboard challenge when they brought all of their salespeople together from around the world. They had us come and do a creative project with them. And it was all just team building. How fun. uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Very, very cool. Awesome. All right. So our lightning round, these are just questions that we ask all of our guests to get to know them a little bit better on a personal note. So I'll start it off this time. Finish this sentence for us. Women are powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. What are three pieces of advice you would give your younger self? I did think about this a lot. So I was like, don't stress, sweat so much. Don't, don't stress the day-to-day stuff. The, the world can handle a lot of your mistakes. Find mentors and keep them like find them young and keep them. And I, I, I think to young women, find women mentors. And to young men, find men mentors who can help you through those awkward years and the finding yourself years without dictating. So your mentors should be people who facilitate and help bring you to the surface, not try to create something in you that comes from the outside. And uh, don't do anything... Uh, it's going to embarrass you mm. if it's in the public six months from now. The more and more we ask this question, um, and my husband and I were having this conversation a few days ago too about with graduation and com- commencement speeches, and we hear them. And I think that sometimes those great lessons were like, yeah, 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 I'm like, that's great advice. That's great advice. It's so much easier said than done. Right. Like you hear these pieces of advice and we think it's a great question. And especially when things we hear them um, from multiple people or like everybody goes through it, like you're not the only one. So there's like an empowering part of that. But it is easier said than done. And the reason why it's a piece of advice now is because Mm -hmm. of that. So I just want to put that out there because that was very relevant. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? You know, I'm a little self-serving with it, but for me, it's in education and it's the STEAM Carnival because the STEAM Carnival is, um, it, it's like a, a a science fair, like blown out. It's 
It's all of the things that you would experience at a science fair, student projects, things students have done, but the um, outcome, you know, the, it's the kids are bringing their creations to the table and they're building from, and they're then ex giving the experience to whoever comes through to play the game they've created or the same with the game jams, like it's something kids can create and then show. So, so it's the very basic pieces of technology that allow that to happen. The Arduinos and the Raspberry Pis and the, you know, that kind of thing that just allow it to be. I love that though, because it helps kids to discover things about themselves and to feel proud about their creativity and, and ways that maybe they didn't even know they had before. So I think that's very cool. What issue do you most hope technology will help resolve in the future? Individualized learning programs, I think, is the most important uh, thing for us to, to approach. And I think it would be the most productive in terms of long-term impact on our society. Individual learning plans would, uh, uh, would solve so many things. What inspires you, Leah? I, you know, I told you a story earlier about a young girl who was first in her family to finish high school and she was going off to university. Like those are the moments that make all of the rest of it worthwhile. When you see a kid go from, you know, sort of sitting in the back with hunched shoulders to engaging in whatever's going on. And we've had reports from so many teachers about, you know, this student and that student who just never took part in projects until we brought in the STEAM uh, lab and all the material was right there. They just had to do it. So if they had to gather materials from home and bring them in, they weren't taking part. And sometimes they weren't taking part because there just wasn't anything to bring in that didn't embarrass them. This way, it's all stuff that we brought in. So we can take the embarrassment out of it and the kids can make. So yeah, it's like really seeing a kid, a fire set under a student or a student who just suddenly gets interested in taking on some of the work that maybe a month ago seemed uh, un like too much to take on. I love that because we actually just recently interviewed this amazing um, young woman who now works for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. And um, she she had a realization, I think it was a little later, um, where she was in college and she wasn't quite sure whether or not she should do something. And she had a mentor that was like, you've got this, you need to do it. And if it wasn't for that person, we don't know if we should, would have been interviewing her a few weeks ago. So those stories are so inspirational. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, other people will aspire to be that, you know, and, yeah. and have that direction and have those people, those good people in place. So that, that yeah. um, I call it, what is it, the, um, your, your tribe of, of mm -hmm. mentors and, and good people to really uh, align you and not tell you what to do, but almost let you figure it out. You know, like mm -hmm. we were talking about, like you're going to, you know, get bumps in the road and that's all part of the learning process and enjoy the journey. You hear that, you know, enjoying the journey is not as easy as it sounds and it's tough and it's hard sometimes. But when you look back on it, um, you know, you'll you'll be that much better for it and appreciate it. So so um, in your personal or your professional life, what is something you would like to learn more about? Oh, that is, that was the hardest thing for me to even consider. What would I like to learn more about? Because I, my bumper sticker would be so many books, so little time. Like, and it's because everything is so interesting. And I, uh, so the future of technology for women, I'm really interested in, like, what does that look like? How could we reshape the world if women had a an equal voice. I don't think we need to get rid of the guys. I just think that until we are uh, represented equally in the decision making, uh, it's we're going to be stuck in a lot of this stuff. So um, I guess that's like what what could the world look like if we had fifty fifty with women? Oh, I love that. Yeah. I want to I want to learn about that too. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll be part of that solution. You know, mm -hmm. getting the word out. Yes. All right. Two more for you. So describe the future in one word. Optimistic. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Work like a girl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love it. Awesome. Again, thank you so, so much, Leah. This has been yes. an amazing conversation. Um, education is, again, such a, a, a big 
part of all of our conversations, Sue and me, like we were constantly talking about ways, I mean, being moms, moms of, uh, of daughters um, is such a, is such an important topic for us all the time. And we're always looking for ways to um, better educate ourselves so that we can better educate them and to better educate uh, our listeners. Uh, and, you know, teachers in general just need to be treated like gold. Um, I think a lot of people just to resonate, uh, to echo what you had mentioned earlier are starting to realize just how difficult it is being with uh, a student all day long and teaching them and engaging them, um, and, and not coming across boring, et cetera. So, um, now's the time and uh empowering them and and your program is amazing so thank it really you. is thank you for everything that you're doing to bring these these disciplines to all kids i mean it's just an amazing mission keep up the great work thank you where can people find you online we are the twobitcircus.org so just twobitcircus.org and it's the word written out if anybody wants to connect with you personally online are you visible anywhere social channel I'm Leah Haynes. I think actually Dr. Leah Haynes at uh, on Twitter, and uh, and WJ Leah Haynes on Facebook. Fantastic! Thank awesome. you so much, Leah. Thank you both. It was enjoyable. Bye now. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.